Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a very funny comedian and musician. You might have heard him on Rude Tales of Magic or Hampton High, or if you've got a kid, perhaps you heard him singing V is for Vegetable on Sesame Street, which is a very cool credit, in my opinion. Please welcome Tim Platt. Hello, thank you for having me. Really excited to, like I said, uh, you're a very funny comedian. I'm a big fan of your work, and I'm uh, excited to be digging into this with you. Thank you. I'm excited, too. When you reached out, you know, I was nervous about doing this because I feel like I am, I love horror, but I'm not, a, I don't have the biggest repertoire, you know, and I assumed someone had taken Hellraiser. I was like, well... You know, that's the movie I have the most connection to, I think. And I, of course, it's taken. And I'm so shocked that no one has touched it yet. Truly, uh, it was a surprise to me as well. There, are, Like I, I mentioned off air, there are so many big names that I'm just like shocked haven't been picked. Hellraiser in particular is a shock for me because it is so visceral and stands out, I think, within horror in such an interesting way. But before we even get into that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your history with horror. Yeah, I mean, I did not like it as a kid. I was scared. You know, I remember Are You Afraid of the Dark being too scary for me. I remember being at a sleepover and all the boys agreeing that that's what we're going to watch. And I remember turning around on the couch to face the other wall because it freaked me out too much. A lot of the body horror of some of those even like like Rocco's Modern Life or Red and Stimpy, sure, that was too much for me. close-ups. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that I did not have a taste for. As I got older, I just didn't really engage with horror at all, really. And then I think I had a sort of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to say this in front of, like, I feel like a more horror literate people. But I think this sort of like A24 modern horror revolution, or I guess like marketing <laughs> strategy, <laughs> really like opened me up to stuff. I saw the Babadook in theaters alone because I had so many friends who recommended it. And that made me realize, oh, horror. I don't know what my thing was before. A, I, like, I, was, I was scared and I'm older and I now, well, I think it was two things. I think it was one that movies had become so expensive and going to a movie and knowing I was going to get some sort of physical reaction suddenly became like kind of a premium for me mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, if I, I can go see a Marvel movie. I feel nothing about that. I can go see one of these comedies. These are hit or miss for me. If I'm seeing a horror, even if I don't like it, I have those moments of tenseness mm -hmm. that feels like it was worth the ticket. So that got me more excited. And then with The Babadook in particular, I think that movie gave me a real like, you know, that was when I was very into improv. And improv is so much about applying in the moment inspiration to rules and structures that like your teammates can agree upon and i had i was such a prick about that i hated the rules and seeing the babadook and be like oh there's no rule but scare <laughs> there's no rule but like what if this shocks you in this moment and then we and then like that has such a that movie had such a clean metaphor that it, it made it very digestible for me to be like oh i this is the, 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 these are fun there's comedy logic here of like it doesn't matter. Yeah, the third thing happens faster because it, it needs to happen faster for you to get that reaction. And that got me more open to seeing horror movies. And I've, you know, seen more since then, but still don't have the biggest. I don't digest them that much, though. I did get really into Shirley Jackson over the pandemic. Nice. And I love her novels. I think yeah. those are so eerie and funny and easy to read and uh, cool. <laughs> 
well, Shirley Jackson is absolutely incredible. And I don't think that there's anything embarrassing about, you know, having A24 be the the gateway. I, I love a lot of those movies, too. I think, you know, people have sort of pushed back on it a little bit just because it has become popular. But I think that's great. I want people to go and like and see horror. And if if this is the current wave that's uh, that's popular at the moment, you know, I think that that's uh, that's fantastic. I am curious to know if you have like a favorite subgenre that's been helping you to sort of get into it. You know, you mentioned Shirley Jackson. I think there are some pretty serious gothic elements to Hellraiser. I'm curious if that's something that speaks to you. The movies that I've responded to most are The Lighthouse. I love The Lighthouse, which I don't know if it's a horror officially, but is like, I don't know if I'd call it to call that even gothic, but sort of like heightened, tense, two-person scenes, you know, (laughs) in a sort of beautiful, natural spot. I think I got into Dracula relatively recently, and I think that's been a real, like, spearhead for me. Nice. Of getting into more horror stuff. Like, I read the book, Dracula, for the first time in, like, 2019, 2020, and just found it so funny, so cool. Like, I love an epistolary novel. The way you were, like, dosed with lore about this guy i think is fun and i guess it's not dissimilar from hellraiser 2 where it's like there is a core of like an emotional scene and emotional relationships and then it is being threatened by this like outside lore that is coming in yeah and as like a consumer you are like oh i want to know more about that lore but i'm not getting enough (laughs) of it you know like my my big joke about dracula is that like no one knows Count Dracula as a vampire, but we all know he's a vampire. So all the characters are always like, what's this guy's deal? Like, have you met Count Dracula? He's kind of weird, you know? And so I love that book. I, I think vampires and that lore, I've, I've gotten a little focused on, I like, a lot. Hell yeah. And so I've watched, I haven't watched Nosferatu yet. It's great. It's really great. I'm, I think I'm waiting to see if there's some screening of that I can go to on a big screen. But, you know, like, I love the Francis Ford Coppola movie. I did not like the Frank Langella movie, but thought he was a great Dracula. I think if, like, you haven't seen that movie, just go to YouTube and type all of his scenes, and he's, like, electric. I like that I liked, I liked that Netflix series that came out a few years ago. I think it was a BBC series that Netflix then had on it. It was, like, three hour-and-a-half episodes hmm. that were a really good adaptation of Dracula, which I liked a lot. Wow. I don't think I knew that that existed. Yeah, it's cool. It, it takes some cool swings with the with the narrative. I liked Midnight Mass, which is basically a cool vampire story. I watched a lot of The Strain, which sucked, <laughs> but had some some cool bodies, <laughs> some cool stuff. I like Guillermo del Toro a lot. I, I don't I don't really think he is a horror. Well, I don't know. I the, the, these boundaries I don't really know. But the, the way he creates monsters, I've I've always really dug. Yeah, yeah, I think Dracula is rad as hell. I have often talked about how one of my favorite things is that in the original 30s movie, they were like, oh, we need him to have, like, exotic pets, so he's gonna have, like, vampire armadillos (laughs) just wandering around the castle. (laughs) Well, I do like how much of a creature fiend he is, where it's just like... The one thing you gotta know about Dracula is that little creepies and he can turn into them. They're around, you know. <laughs> yeah, just hanging out. There's a bee in a coffin. It has its own special bee yes. coffin. Who doesn't love that? Uh, I just um, <laughs> I just watched what we do in the shadows, the movie, for the first time, and that was like, I w- I was embarrassed. It took me so long. I was like, oh, this has been recommended to me specifically for years, and it's like, right in my wheelhouse here. 
it's really great. Also, you know, you mentioned uh, loving the format of the Dracula novel. I think that there is a really cool thing out there uh, that I had signed up for, I think last year, maybe two years ago, where on the dates of the... Dracula Daily. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really cool, uh, interesting way to experience the novel, actually, like, getting the missives from uh, Harker and all of this, so... Really cool. I stuff. subscribe, and just yesterday was one of my favorite little paragraphs. It's a Renfield. It's I. I oh, think yeah. the line is like, <laughs> I forgot what the exact line is. He's like, but it's something uh, along the lines like, we have asked him to stop with the spiders, but just like the <laughs> like just like the flies, he goes back to them or something like like that. <laughs> oh, classic Dracula! You can't stop him with the spiders. Yeah, but I do think <laughs> you know, in terms of horror, I think Dracula was really big for me. I just saw Mad God, which is really cool. I think I think like a lot of people get out was a real like uh as someone who was never engaged with the genre as like a pretty like traditional consumer it was so like oh this is smart you know what I mean it's yeah. like this is so smart this is so funny I'm still getting scares and I think that was another spirit for a lot of people of like oh there's so much cool horror out there they have been like, see, it's sort of like patting you on the head. Like, it's smart. It's okay. <laughs> you know, you're smart too for watching this. You know? um, as a consumer, I felt like that. But yeah, and then Shirley Jackson, some like literary horror, like I said before, really got me into like, oh, I like being gripped. I like suspense. Yeah. You know, Alien, you know, that that, 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 that that kind of stuff is horror too. That sort of suspenseful stuff got me more like, oh, I think I'm more into that than sort of, well, I feel like I grew up with, with a lot of gross out body horror massacre things that i i think kept me away from the more sus suspenseful stuff yeah that makes a lot of sense and the movie that we're talking about today does fit right into that it's clive barker's hellraiser released in 1987 and based on his novella the hellbound heart which is fantastic as well it's good I know you wrote and were in a very funny video where your job is to admire and stroke photos of Pinhead's yeah, face. Yeah. So it has seeped into your comedy. I'm curious if you remember how you first came across this movie in particular. Yeah. So, I mean, like anyone who grew up in a blockbuster, that was an iconic cover photo that you'd walk by yeah. and you see that and you're like, <laughs> that's a weird, you know, <laughs> you see Pinhead on the front. You see Pinhead on the front and you know his name is Pinhead. This is why there was, <laughs> it was comic to me. I had never seen the movie, but... Somehow someone was like, hey, you know, they never call him Pinhead in the movie. And that just like, <laughs> when you're a comedian, sometimes just like little things crack you or like crack you open or like you can't get over. And I was mm. like, I've known that I've never seen this movie. I know Pinhead. I know <laughs> he is Pinhead. I've never seen, they never call him Pinhead. And then I heard Lynn Moore. It's like, well, actually, you know, it's based on a book. And he's never even called Pinhead. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> but we all know Pinhead. You know, it's, it, it's like when you realize you never call the Ewoks Ewoks. You're like, but we all know that the Ewoks. And so something about Pinhead then just like, that got me. I was like, Pinhead, I know it's Pinhead. We all know it's Pinhead. But there is no Pinhead. We love Pinhead. <laughs> you know? And so then I just started making these like videos on, I think it was Snapchat originally, where it's like, I, the joke was that like, I was at my office and someone's like, hey, like, get back to work. And it's, you know, I am at work. And then the frame comes and you see me stroking Pinhead's face. And that just like obsessed with me. I got obsessed with that. And I made a whole comedy short. That's just about a guy whose job it is to stroke <laughs> pictures of Pinhead. <laughs> and so I made that and eventually was like, I'm too into Pinhead to have not seen this movie. So I, <laughs> I, I, me and a buddy 
we watched the movie together because I know we want because I, I was like I, I should see this movie and I didn't know what to expect I didn't know I don't know what sort of terms you refer to horror now but I was not expecting something so dramatic and interesting you know I was expecting yeah. things to be more gross out I, I was wasn't expecting so little of Pinhead that's for sure <laughs> but. I, th- I was really relieved. That thing was like, I've been sort of like passively obsessed with this character as a joke for a while, but I really like this movie. It's like, I really liked it. And then once we finished it, we then uh, fast forwarded through every other Hellraiser movie just to get to the pinhead scenes. So I watched every pinhead scene. Hell yeah. <laughs> but haven't seen the, the sequels. Uh, no, you're not missing that's, much. <laughs> I hear the second one is worth is worth it. The second, Yeah. Here's the thing. For me, I love the second one as well. I think it is really interesting. But of all of the like tentpole franchises, I think that Hellraiser takes the most precipitous drop in quality in that almost immediately I am out on like three. And I've seen literally every Hellraiser yeah. movie. And from three onward, I'm like, these are not good. Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's, that's our impression just by <laughs> looking at the pinhead, the pinhead scenes. But then, like, to be honest... So uh, I don't know if you know Brett Davis. Brett Davis is a comedian uh, in L.A. now, and he had this show on uh, Manhattan Public Access that was the Chris Gethard time slot called uh, The Special Without Brett Davis because he played a new character every time. He had a great Dracula, by the way. If you if you want to see it, Brett Davis is the best modern Dracula of, of any comedian I know. But then he did a Hellraiser episode, and he got to, and I got to dress up as Pinhead and sort of act as a Pinhead type with great makeup. <laughs> From their great team at the special, they had great production, and so I got to I got to be a pinhead character, and there's some videos of that online. Wow, the dream! And then and then like I read the book, The Hellbound Heart, on a plane from New York to L.A. There was that it was it was at that time when there was like there was no screens on the back, and they were like, uh, yeah, but you can watch a movie on your phone if you download the app. It doesn't work, and I I just read that <laughs> oh, I read the whole book the whole ride over, which is also really really good. But yeah, so I feel like there's a bunch of stuff that like sort of got me to the movie, and then I actually saw the movie, and I was like, this rules, you know? Yeah, it's always really lucky when you uh, are like in- interested in it because of like a joke, and then it just happens to work out that it is amazing. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I feel like the reverse has happened before. I can't think of a good example, but it's like... Morbius. Look at Morbius. Yeah. Everyone loves talking about Morbius, and uh, no one saw the movie. I saw the movie. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, vampires that's, that's your dracula love vampire, yeah. I, vampire I'll, I'll watch vampire stuff you know there you go uh, did you, you did you not see morbius no i didn't make it out to it i saw it with a bunch of friends in theaters and it was fun for that experience but like truly mm-hmm. not bad enough to like throw on at home you know what i mean yeah i do that's uh unfortunate but kind of the impression that i had gotten and i was like i think i'm just gonna miss this one yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> But this is a really interesting movie because fairly frequently there is some difficulty in adapting your own work, Mm -hmm. I think, perhaps because of reluctance to trim too hard. When you're the one who did the source, you become overly precious with it. But um, I think that Clive did a really amazing job of of adapting it and and being willing to make some changes from the original story that do benefit the movie. It seems like he has been super flexible with his, like, Cenobite extended universe, I think it's been... I've only read Hellbound Heart, haven't read the other ones, and don't know much beyond the Wikipedia pages that I devoured when I first realized that Pinhead was never called Pinhead, you know? <laughs> but it seems like he has really, like, taken what the public... 
the most prominent version of his characters in these stories are and really work them back into his conception of what this of what these characters could be and what this universe could be in a way that i think is pretty cool you know i love like i sort of said like it's just such an easy fix to give you a taste of lore and like uh, a, a big like I grew up reading a bunch of like Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman comics, and I feel like they they were so big on being like a character is leaving, and it's like this was uh, this is a big Neil Gaiman thing. It was like you've had this like mysterious character, and it's like this is you've changed since the last time we've met. You know, like oh they met before. You know, whoa, whoa shit, <laughs> the Sandman knows that other yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, like that type. Of, <laughs> and I was like, uh, I was like, oh, oh no, we're not the fairy anymore, but you know that. And I'm like, oh no, like what the fuck. <laughs> and I feel like Cenobates are that perfect thing where you're like, what the fuck are these dudes' deals? Like, I want to know more. And even reading the Wikipedia page, you're like, I still don't know these two deals, you know? <laughs> and I just love that stuff. I love when lore is a joke and lore is like a bit of a tease and lore is flexible in that way, you know? Definitely. There was a pretty great commentary track on the Anchor Bay Blu-ray that I watched with Clive Barker, Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty, and screenwriter Peter Atkins. So that was cool if people uh, want to check that out. It was 15 years later, which, uh, you know, that's an interesting amount of time to come back and revisit it. And it was particularly interesting to see how Clive felt about the legacy mm. coming back to it. He said specifically that he feels like time is forgiving to it, that he did not like the movie a few years after mm -hmm. it. And then now coming back to it, he feels like it is an effective piece of the movies of that time period that it was made in. He also specifically said that he feels kind of removed from the series past two and that it's no longer continuing this story. It is more just using the pieces that he made, like you said, utilizing the, the Cenobites in, uh, in their own sort of world to uh, just mess around with as opposed to following Kirsty and her family. Yeah, and it's interesting because one thing that is, you know, coming into the movie before Pin I came for Pinhead, it's so cool how lightly it's used, you know? And in the book, you know, Pinhead is not the main, the engineer, the main guy. He's just like a, a visual. Well, I, I don't think his gender is spe specified, but the Pinhead character is just a sort of a background centipede that then, because of the visual excitement of the production of the movie, is is made more prominent. And that, what's that actor's name? I wrote it down. Uh, 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 Doug Bradley. Yes. I mean, that performance is so cool and so sparse. And when you get those light moments of, of these characters and the way they define themselves... <laughs> Wait, 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 navigators of a dimension, demons to some, <sighs> angels to other. All that stuff is like, that's sort of all you need. And it's like every Wikipedia hole I've gone down this has not been satisfying because it's so much more interesting just to have these like, we are here. What about <laughs> us? Pain. <laughs> oh, pain. And in the moment, in the moment, they're like, "I was a 20th century doctor, and I went." And you're like, "I don't give a fuck," you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? No, go back to being just the the secret yeah, guy. Yeah. <laughs> and like, and you know, the all of the other, the back, the the background setup bites. <laughs> and those some might begrudge me for calling them background because they are so iconic and they steal every moment there is. You got to admit, if you don't got a line, you in the background. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> I guess the Chatterer has a bunch of lines, the Chattering. Mm. And Chatterer is actually my favorite of oh, the really? Cenobites. 
Yes, I'm a big chatter. There's a female one whose name I forget that has the the open throat, which is so cool. Yeah, she's got lines. She does have lines while uh, leaving. So yes, soon. yes, <laughs> classic. Uh, we know Frank. <laughs> it's so funny. I think about this. They're like, "Do you know? Uh, do you know first name last name?" And they're like, "We know first name last name." And it's sort of funny that like demons and interdimensional stuff. They're like, Frank. Oh, Frank. <laughs> last name oh, oh yeah we know frank last name you know <laughs> that's crazy small world <laughs> yeah and also uh, that it is interesting that everybody gets like fun names except for uh, i mean i guess like you said pinhead is not really technically his yeah. name but he is referred to as the pinheaded cenobite yeah, yeah. at one point and yeah she's just female cenobite yeah. it's like come on that's lame <laughs> throat monster that's such a, it's so i mean it's so gross it's so cool it really is yeah, I mean, I, they're, it's so lightly used, and they're so well-designed, and they're so fun to be in the same room with, and they're scary. Mm-hmm. And they're scary. Yeah, that's know? a huge part of it. If they're not scary, who cares? Yeah, yeah. The movie does also introduce Ashley Lawrence. This was her first anything, she said. Jennifer Tilly almost got the role, though, which I thought oh. would have been interesting and a very different movie. Yeah. But she got called in last second for a, a cold read before Clive was leaving for England. And his description of the plot that they gave her was, your uncle is in your father's skin and he wants to kill you and have sex with you. Maybe in that order. <laughs> Go. That's. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the pitch for the character in many ways. <laughs> uh, but it's so funny. I mean, for me, hearing that, that is what it is. But that's for me, what this movie is about is about Julia. It's about Claire Higgins. This I, 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 the reason that this movie stuck with me so much. Like the what, when I first watched it, Pinhead was my in- entry point. But what made me be like during the movie, like, oh my god, this is amazing, was Claire Higgins' performance as Julia, where it's like you are psychotically horny for a pile of like flesh and garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, so hearing that like it's about you and your uncle being in the skin. I'm like, yes, that is what this movie's about. But for me, this movie is about, like, you have to believably be horny for a a growing pile of flesh garbage. Yeah. And she nails it. I rewatched, like, most of her scenes on YouTube this morning. And I was just like, God, she sells it. It's She's revolted. She doesn't want to do this. But she's transfixed by this guy in this primal way. It's maybe one of my favorite screen performances ever. It carries the whole movie because none of the set pieces of daughter-father relationship, the the entry point of these of, of Pinhead and the and, and his ilk, <laughs> none of that holds if you don't believe why this woman is making these extreme actions that she's making. Yeah. And you do. You just do. And that's what makes it such a compelling movie and why it's like the idea of these set pieces moving forward outside of the, of that relationship i'm i'm not interested in seeing these you know yeah she is really fantastic i think that uh you know it's it's a difficult role too because frigidity is not an easy thing to communicate and still be an interesting character mm-hmm. because it is by its very nature pretty reserved and so it has to kind of be a less is more situation it is in in her body language, the revulsion, the shaking. I, I, she does really just a spectacular job. Yeah, and, and it's, it's also that she, her her to be actorly about it. It's like her motivation is so clear every moment. She isn't evil. It's like she is not a cursed character. She just wants something weird, yeah. <laughs> and that wanting motivates her to do awful things. 
but you see, and she doesn't want to do them, but she does them because she wants the thing more than she is revolted by this stuff. And all of that is clear. Every action she takes, it's like, what's the what's what's the Sweeney Todd name? The character? Oh, um, oh gosh, the pipe maker. Yeah. I forget it's like her even name. her name. Like she even it's like in the song. I think I can't remember yeah. either. Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, yeah something like that. Uh, uh, something like Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> but like that that character in the musical, you know, you sort of believe that like she's doing this stuff because she loves this Sweeney Todd guy. Like that's it's uh, and that's and that's so outlandish, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the Julia Claire Higgins performance is for me, I find it really remarkable because she you know she is. She's frigid, she's passionate, she is subtle, she's realistic, she's broad in a way you have to be in a horror movie in some points, you know? It's a really great performance. Yeah, I think it is kind of summed up in a... He, Clive said this sort of off the cuff in the commentary, but I do think that it is a, a pretty insightful moment where he refers to Julia and Frank as the Macbeths. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a really accurate sort of comparison point for those two. The moment that I think of, he's like, don't look at me. And she goes out the door and you see her, the, the, the frame has her like breathing heavily about what she did. And then you see in through the, the door, his creature come out and like crawl into the thing and it's disgusting. Yeah. And you see, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the don't look at me aspect of the ordering and she's out, but she's still clearly in this like, sexual thrall of him and does and it does not only look at him but being ordered not to look is kind of part of it it feels like yeah but she knows he's being built back into this thing it's like that shot right there while she's looking out and you see this like two this ghoul crawling back in is cool yeah it's really cool we also have andrew robinson who gets a cool double role as larry slash frank and larry's Mm -hmm. skin suit which is, uh, you know, that's an interesting dichotomy to be able to play the hapless schmuck and uh, and the pure evil guy. Mm-hmm. He also had done a lot of theater before breaking out into a role in Dirty Harry. And this was, he said, his first prosthetics movie and that it was excruciating, but he knew it was going to be great from the word go. He's awesome. And I just found out, um, he did you ever watch uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine? No, I um, didn't get to Deep Space Nine. I'm watching it for the first time now because of a podcast I'm on called Oh These, Those Stars of Space. I'm going to plug it right now. It's Hell a little yeah. Star Trek pastiche. It's great. And the uh, that crew got me, told me to watch it because of the character Garrick, which is played by the guy who plays Larry. Oh, wow. Who is like this fantastic role, this fantastic performance. I had no idea. And he's super prosthetic up. Wow. He's a Cardassian. <laughs> if that means anything to anyone. <laughs> But that I found out, you know, recently that he he's in my favorite horror movie, wow. so it's really cool. <laughs> we also get Frank played by Sean Chapman in the past, but Oliver Smith is the one who's buried under a ton of prosthetics as well to play <clears throat> modern day Frank. And you know, we've sort of talked around it, but the technical stuff in this movie is truly incredible. The lighting and cinematography were done by Robin Vision, which more like Robin Pigeon, double bird name. Whoa. <laughs> whoa. Well, you got, whoa. <laughs> I'm into that. Bob Keen also did the special effects, and he just knocks it out of the park. This is a goop classic, not just blood, but like lymphatic fluid, too. Which is so interesting because Bob Keen is so much better known for Family Circus. So when you see this sort of, when you see his family side and grotesque side, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. Definitely. 
And for anyone who's think, I know it's Bill Keen, <laughs> I'm being a little silly. <laughs> okay, this guy's a stinker. Watch out. Ha <laughs> I'm a silly little boy. <laughs> uh, Johanna Johnston did the costuming, which is also rad. She said that what Clive asked for was repulsive glamour, magnificent mm. super butchers. And she delivered, baby. Yeah. This was also before, like, the S&M element was hip. So Clive was saying that, I got very self-conscious. I'd love to say that they walked on set, and I was like, what a revelation. But he thought that they looked ridiculous, and that people would laugh. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, instead, we get this new horror icon in Pinhead, which does kind of come out of the blue. And in a way that I think does distinguish itself from the surrounding ones like Chucky and Freddy, because in addition to being a more just dramatic movie... Hellraiser kind of disturbs you in a more visceral way than just, I'm scared of that guy running up and stabbing me. Yeah, because he doesn't move. He, like, <laughs> he barely moves. To. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. The attic recreation set was on a small single-stage studio, and they had under a million dollars budget, which is absurd. The house they got for this for the film that is basically the only place that they filmed in, really, uh, was for sale so cheap because, according to Ashley Lawrence, someone had just killed themselves in it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That uh, was quite a shock to hear on the commentary. That makes it more sense of how Frank was able to come back up because yeah. of that, that blood there, too. So Exactly. Yeah, it all contributed. The producers did want to change the title because they thought that Hellraiser wouldn't play well in the South. And uh, this little prim British lady suggested what women will do for a good fuck. I mean, that's that. Yeah, she's right. <laughs> he said that's a good log line. Maybe not a great title. <laughs> well, it is. In I like I was saying before, I, I it is interesting to me that like the core of the movie is that, and it is so not what you think of when you think of this movie and this genre and this franchise. Yeah, but the core of this movie is very much. A creepy little relationship. The working title, which I also loved, was um, Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. Very, uh, like, pulpy feeling. That's cool. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily fit the movie. Doesn't but fit. <laughs> but as removed from that, I do like it as a title. And the movie did gross $14.5 million, despite the title. And people like blahip villain Roger Ebert pushing back on Stephen King, saying Clive was the future of horror. Uh, Roger said... As dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror in many a long, cold night, who goes to see movies like this? What do they get out of them? This is a movie without wit, style, or reason, and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and the technicians to realize it's bankruptcy of imagination. My guy going in on it. Yeah, I wonder what he'd say about that now. I don't know. Yeah, wouldn't say anything because he's oh, dead. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what he'd say. I really do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like... His loss. Yeah. Yeah, best horror movie ever made, as far as we're concerned. As far as I'm concerned, that's for sure. To get into the actual movie, I really love this understated title card. You know, I think it's a fun kind of uh, ploy to be like, oh, maybe this isn't going to be as uh, maximalist in the gore as uh, as it will become. But uh, it is cool, just simple white text on a black background. And this opening shot is so important. It opens on the box which is mm. immediately intriguing, and it is kind of the fulcrum of the story. And this man says, what's your pleasure, Mr. Cotton? 
Frank Cotton is a really interesting character. He is only 29 and indeed played by a 26-year-old in this moment. He's described as, quote, seeking pleasures which would redefine the parameters of sensation, which would release him from the dull round of desire, seduction, and disappointment that had dogged him from late adolescence, wanting to be exalted by his lust instead of despised for it. And I think it does create this dangerous, desperate feeling to him right away. Yeah, there's a, like... I think the creature he becomes is so not boring, but it's just such a a, a visual. It's uh, such a horror show, you know. Mm. Uh, he becomes a ball of flesh. He manipulates people around him. He then gets form and wants to be a baddie boy. You know, like I, I think that is a character that sort of loses what makes him really scary. Um, that's not fair to say. He, I think he stays scary, but I think he loses what makes him sort of like a literary character. Sure, <laughs> you know. Sure, that. That I do think the the movie thrives on the sort of the literary pretensions of some of these ideas, and someone who just like wants to like escape into primal pain, like primal pleasure, that stuff that is like that's interesting. It's exciting, especially when it, like goes beyond the realms of our traditional sadomasochism that you can find in sure. an earthly life, you know. <laughs> and that as a pardon my pun, but like a pinpoint into what these Cenobites characters are. It, it's it's such a weird desire, but such a clear desire. And it's such an opening into mystery that we don't understand. And maintaining that clarity and that mystery, I think is like where this, these movies and these ideas are the most balanced. And whenever it tries to sort of broaden that or even specify even more is when I'm just like, oh, you've, you've lost, you've lost me a little bit, you sure, know? Sure, sure. And I do like that he escapes, and the fact that he escapes, I also think, is a thing that's like, I want to know a little more about, like, what escape means in this world. Yeah. What, like, um, yes. Definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. The gentleman does sell Frank the box, which he shiningly says was always his. <laughs> mm. This is Le Marchand's box, a.k.a. the Lament Configuration, a puzzle box that can create a doorway to the schism plane. Pain and pleasure, indivisible... And one of my biggest gripes about later Hellraiser movies is connected to something I like about this one, which is that the story reinforces time and time again how difficult opening the puzzle is, how mm. intensely they have to focus, that half of the key is desire to actually open it. And this is how it's described. Well, Frank makes his first steps in the ritual that will supposedly bring him to new realms of pleasure. So intent was Frank upon solving the puzzle of Lamarchand's box that he didn't hear the great bell begin to ring. The device had been constructed by a master craftsman, and the riddle was this, that though he'd been told the box contained wonders, there simply seemed to be no way into it. No clue on any of its six black lacquered faces as to the whereabouts of the pressure points that would disengage one piece of this three-dimensional jigsaw from another. Only after several hours of trial and error did a chance juxtaposition of thumbs, middle, and last finger bear fruit. An almost imperceptible click, and then victory a segment of the box slides out from its neighbor. And I think that this is super fun. It does help to build suspense. And you compare this to one of the later movies where someone opens the box by literally dropping it on a subway. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, this to me, that that using desire as a key does feel more literary, does feel like it is more connected to the characters and an actual tie-in instead of just a MacGuffin. And I also I love that, and I also think it connects to what we were saying with Julia, where it's like you know why they want to do these things, and the Cenobites as a set piece, if they are just monsters who are chasing you, 
it it doesn't really mean much. Mm-hmm. And the thing that like y- your desire brought you to these people, not just your actions, not just your mistakes, not just like being mean or something <laughs> like that. Like you had a desire to engage with them, and that's why you've earned them. You yeah. know, that make that makes things feel so much scarier, and makes them have so much more power. Because if not, they're just sort of monsters who walk around you. you know? Yeah. <laughs> It's just a just do with pins in his face. Yeah. <laughs> but he does open it up and, and the ritual begins and suddenly hooks fly out and pierces flesh and time passes. We're not sure how much, but the house is a mess. It's covered in rotting food. And we enter the room and it's so much worse. There's hooks and chains everywhere, meat attached to all of them, rotating pillars with ears and dicks and skulls stapled on them. It's truly uh, just a, a nightmare picture. Yeah. One thing that got cut, because how do you even show this, but it, I thought it was cool in the book, was that uh, Frank's senses become so hypersensitive that it overwhelms him even before the Cenobites arrive. Mm. I thought that was cool. And that also, cool. Uh, apparently the collective term is a gash of Cenobites. <laughs> Did you end up reading the rest of those books? I only read The, Hell, the, the Hellbound Heart, and that was a while ago, so I don't, right. I don't remember much of the differences or the nuances that the movie moved away from. But I don't remember. I don't remember much, and I don't really know where... those characters went did you read the rest of it so i haven't gotten to the rest of the books of blood i own it and i have been highly recommended to get to it and it is on my list but you know it's there's so so little time and so many things to get i know i know (laughs) also i did think it was funny when they arrive clive literally calls them pinhead and the gang which that that just made me laugh (laughs) that is cool he seems like he's got a sense of humor he's a funny guy and uh, arrive they have some not-quite-human beings that stride through, reassembling Frank's living but torn asunder face on the floor. But when the pinheaded one puts the box back together, the room is back to complete normalcy as quickly as it wasn't. And he pointed out something I thought was really, really interesting on the commentary, where he says he learned this lesson from Scanners, the Cronenberg movie, which is that you can tame the audience very early on with a grisly delivery of thrills and spills, and then that primes them. They say, oh, I know that I'm in good hands, and they're a little more calm for the exposition, the 20 or 30 minutes of getting to know the family, because they've seen what's to come already. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And it, it was, and it, and it is an easy way, not an easy way, it is a, a successful way to be like, I mean, I'm just repeating what you said, you know, you know, because we, we end up having the family drama at the core of this. And yeah. like, if when you are primed that you are going to get the gore, you are going to get the shock, the family drama itself then has much more tension than when you're just waiting and waiting. Yeah, I think you can see it in Jaws as well. You know, you get the the girl gets eaten right at the beginning and then we get to meet Amity and we get to meet uh, all of the, the citizens of it and how this is actually impacting them instead of it just being a monster movie. I think that it is really a, a smart move by Clive here. Mm-hmm. I agree, Clive. If you're listening, I agree. <laughs> and I'm sure he is. <laughs> he does. He likes me. Clive likes me. <laughs> We do only get a brief look at the Cenobites here, but they are fantastic. The word Cenobite originally referred to a monk that lived in a religious community, and they definitely have a a religious flair to them. Mm -hmm. Pinhead is the leader in this movie, although not really the case in the story, where it's sort of implied to be Butterball is the leader of that specific group, and then, yeah, the engineer is in charge of the whole thing. But Pinhead himself is described as every inch of his head had been tattooed with an intricate grid, and at every intersection of horizontal and vertical axes, a jeweled pin driven through to the bone with the tongue similarly decorated. Man, I just love the way that Clive describes stuff. 
Yeah, you know, one cool thing, you know, if if any of you have ever tried writing a script, you you you, you know, you realize how hard to get that visual description down in a way that is like fun to read, you know, and clear to read. Yeah. And the way he, the way he describes Pinhead in the book and knowing the pin, the visual of the Pinhead that we have in our brains already, it's like man, you really you, you nailed you nailed it, pal. <laughs> I'm re- I'm really impressed by that literary description. I think it's really cool, and I think it's hard to do that. Yeah, definitely. And, and I've only written bad scripts. <laughs> Butterball has had his eyes sewn shut, and he has these fun tiny glasses. I love impractically tiny glasses on a villain, personally. Mm-hmm. Third is the female Cenobite. Like I said, no fun name, unfortunately. She has some metal piercings through her cheeks and a neck wound that looks like a vagina, though in the story, it's just her vagina is mutilated and exposed. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, and then uh, last but not least is my guy Chatterer, uh, eyes swollen shut and wires peeling back his lips from hooks embedded in the exposed meat on the back of his skull. Truly just grotesque stuff from the lot of them. Yeah. These are nasty people. <laughs> I actually think that they are pretty gross for me. That's my yeah. hot take. You know, you know, and I'm going to push forward. I think if you don't think these people are gross, I think you're weird. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I kind of do. Look, I, I, can't, I, I can't co-sign that because I have a, a reputation to uphold, but... I think it. Look, I just think that, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to, I want to be judgmental for once. I feel like I'm so open and kind yes, for all of yourself. the time of my life. And I want to, I, I want to feel what it's like to be judgmental. And this might be my way. Open up. If you think the Cenobites are normal, I don't think you are. And if you got a wow. problem with that, well, I guess I'm going to learn how to deal with it. <laughs> Tim snapped on him. I don't say this often, but wahaha. <laughs> They they do vanish with the remains of Frank, and sometime later, in comes Larry and Julia. Larry is Julia's husband and Frank's brother, and he wants to move into this house, which it turns out was their parents. She isn't so sure, and even he is disgusted when he sees the kitchen full of all these maggots and, and cockroaches and stuff. But they realize Frank was there when they see his little hidey hole in the, in the attic. Kirsty, his young adult daughter, calls and distracts him while Julia goes through Frank's collection of sex photos. Clive said the woman in the photos was, quote, a professional lady if you catch my drift, which was also funny. Yeah. <laughs> Larry and Julia do ultimately agree to move in, but Kirstie is going to have her own place. And this is probably the biggest difference between the book and the movie, which is that in the movie, she became his daughter with a strained relationship to her stepmother, as opposed to like a sad sack coworker who's hung up on uh, Rory slash Larry. His name is Rory in the book. Yeah, because in the book, she has a crush on the guy, right? Right, right, right. right. And I do think it works both ways. I think that from a like visual watching standpoint, I think that it is improved by having it be his daughter and not someone who's just like moping the whole time. But I think that the idea of her being jealous does add an interesting wrinkle to it in the book. Yeah, I agree. You know, I I wonder I I because at some point you think that'd be fun to see how it plays. It does change the nature of it. But there is something about, like, the family drama beyond the sort of, like, relationship drama that feels like it holds a little more of a contrast to horror, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Which might just be, like, conservative thinking or sort of traditionalist thinking, but it does seem like to, it does seem like, like to me, like, oh, yeah, well, make it a family, <laughs> you know? And that's going to give you a little more of a contrast. But I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I kind of... I can see why they made that change. I think it works in the movie. Yeah. And also, I enjoyed the book, and 
am curious how that would. I mean, it changes. It change. It makes desire more of a part of the picture, and so right. much of this movie is about desire and complicating desire and getting what you want, not getting what you want. You know. Yeah, especially also just the way that it gets repressed because she can't talk about it while Rory slash Larry can't talk about the dynamic between him and Julia and mm. and that strain that's happening. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I I like I said, I do like this change for the movie. I think it does work, but uh. It's just two two separate, interesting approaches. Yeah. She does come to see the place, though, and they said that her walking scene was in there specifically because they were like, wow, we're really just in this house the whole time, huh? <laughs> like, let's, let's just open it up a little bit, have yeah, her yeah, walk yeah. over. <laughs> and it is funny when she arrives and all the Jesus and various saint statues are on the curb to be thrown out. It's like, well, he's definitely not in that house anymore. Julia is absorbed in a photo of Frank that she ripped, so it was just him, and she flashes back to his arrival before the wedding. Clive pointed out the interplay between Larry's dragging the marital bed up the stairs with the memory of the cuckolding brother. I think that that is an interesting comparison. Oh, you know, I, uh, one th- I, that does remind me, I was watching clips this morning, and I remember, and I, if people thought that being cuckolded was what happened to this guy... <laughs> Then I get why people are freaked out by cu- <laughs> why cuckoldry has become a, a an accusation of person. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Definitely. Hey, I don't want my brother skinning me and slipping into my skin to steal my wife. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. It makes traditional cuckoldry a little more appealing. <laughs> Julia is shocked out of this by Kirstie, who needs a towel after the sink explodes, but she does disappear, drawn to the room upstairs. Uh, I love this shot where it just, like, follows her vertically up the stairs, mm-hmm. and she continues to have memories of Frank, this time of how he seduced her, having sex right on top of the wedding gown with her. And it is really funny where Clive said, there was a version of this with some spanking in it, and the MPAA didn't appreciate that. <laughs> the spank cut is out there. Yeah, I guess I I I'll, I will. <laughs> what I'll say is that like I prefer having Frank's sexual appetites being a little academic and unseen at this point. Like I, because the moment he's like spanking someone, you're like, oh, and that's what makes him crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> it's like I don't I don't need that. Sure, sure. I also I did want to pull one more quote from the book that I think does play into this relationship in an interesting way, where he says. But for her acquiescence, it was rape. Memory sweetened events, of course, and in the four years and five months since that afternoon, she'd replayed the scene often. Now, in remembering it, the bruises were trophies of their passion. Her tears proof positive of her feelings for him. And I do think that that is sort of this push-pull pleasure-pain dynamic that is so reinforced through through the movie and the book in general. It does kind of focus it to their relationship in an interesting way as well. Yeah, it's fucked. It's, yeah, yeah. It, 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 that's an interesting point. It is like to see her relationship to the pleasure and pain aspect that Frank was so was so desirous of, and that the Senna Bates are masters of. It does create a grounding of 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 who these who these people are, and it's fucked. It's fucked yeah. to hear that, you know. Definitely, um, it's a it's an evocative line. Larry's hand gets caught on a nail while he's moving the bed, and he starts gushing blood. I really loved this sort of interesting correlation between not only, the again, this pleasure and pain aspect, where it's like the marriage bed that he's holding, plus the pain and the blood and everything, but specifically the, like, thrusting of the hand and his and the bed 
towards the nail being intercut with the memory of Frank and Julia climaxing on their thrusting bed. It just very visually communicates this theme. The sacred and the profane. Yeah. Being hurt and a wedding. The MPAA also was specific that they could only do two consecutive buttock thrusts. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) Three is obscene. (laughs) It seems like I'm on board with all of these. (laughs) God, maybe I am a bigger prude than I thought. Ah, The family, if it's a family, it's a bigger contrast. I don't want to see the spanking. I think two thrusts. Yeah, because at the third, I get a little bit excited. Yeah, hey, we're going to turn this into a four-quadrant movie. Ooh, okay. (laughs) I do also think there is some nice interweaving of the three elements, uh, her remembering her memory and his carrying the the um, bed it just like looks good it's not too you don't get lost in it it's just good work it supports her performance that intercutting it makes it like everything they do to justify her emotional state the way that's edited those memories the walk up the stairs her performance it it like all of that is such a balancing act to, to and i think holds the whole movie together definitely Frank, on the other hand, as they lay there in the afterglow, says, it's never enough. And she cries remembering it and how she begged him to stay, saying she'd do anything he wants, while Larry weakly calls her name and comes in gushing blood all over the floor. Julia, (laughs) I hurt myself. (laughs) It really is. One of my dreams is to be in this movie where I play both Pinhead and Larry. Wow. That, that is the dream. Julia, <laughs> I hurt myself. Please, are you coming downstairs for dinner? What are you doing up here? What the? Frank, I missed you so. What the? Oh. Wow. That's, that's just a little taste casting, directors. I'm Frank now. Mm. Come to daddy. And guess what? Jesus wept. <laughs> guess what? Jesus wept. <laughs> guess what? <laughs> the remake will be a musical, by the way. <laughs> I'm excited for the remake. I, yeah. don't know much, I don't know much about it, except that I'm envious that someone gets to be Pinhead. <laughs> yeah, Doug Bradley finally gave it up, and, uh, and they didn't call Tim. What's that about? I'm, there's, a, there's a Renfield. There's a, I think there's two Renfield projects coming out, and I am fucking envious. Yeah. Oh, that Nick Cage one is going to be good. I know, it looks cool. (laughs) Renfield's one of my dream roles. Yeah. There is an element in this movie that is pushed harder through the internal monologues in the novella, where Frank has like a real derision for Larry and the way that he has always played it safe. And this idea kind of burrows into Julia as well and destroys the love that she thought she had for him. And it definitely comes into play in this moment where Larry is terrified of the blood and he's like threatening to faint at the sight of it and everything. And just when you compare that to her memory of Frank that she was just having, like it it really, you can see sort of why she is like uh, this mewling kitten. (laughs) Yeah. The thing is though, the blood is quickly soaked up by the floor as though it were hungry. Very cool and kind of shocking, even though it is simple. It's just blood through the nail holes filmed in reverse, but it just looks great. And underneath, there is some viscera where a heart slowly begins to beat once again. And they recreated the attic on set for the reconstruction of Frank, which, I mean... It's so cool. It's so incredible. <laughs> yeah. The, lur- the, the, way, the, the way the hands and arms come out and like push themselves out is so classic. The way the sort of... Uh, the nerve endings that become the eyes wander around like desperately. Mm-hmm. The way the rats are watching, 
I uh, that scene. As some yeah, as someone watching this movie, thinking Pinhead is what we're getting, it is so effective. The, the the creation of Frank is so effective and such a an affirmation of what this movie is beyond the iconography of the Cenobites. Definitely. And I also love that it really takes its time, you know, and and you spend a lot of time watching him reassemble. I mean, it's just like meat and half a skeleton, but then he like screams in triumph at his escape. And it's a really like gut punch moment. Yeah. Originally, this wasn't in the movie. And you had to just put it together from the blood getting sucked up and then seeing him sort of arrive in the attic. But when they showed the rough cut to the studio, they said, okay, we like this movie a lot and we can spend a little more on it. So they went back, shot this sequence for $25,000, which was a bargain since the special effects guy really, he was like, I just want to do this. So I'll do it as cheap as possible. And it really is kind of incredible to imagine this movie without that. I think it is such an impactful moment. It is like so well known for people who have checked out the movie and it does create this you know the the hitchcock metaphor of the bomb under the table seeing this monster come out of the surface of the attic and then just be sitting up there creates that bomb for us it's a really great moment of dramatic tension that carries through until we go well how when are they going to find out what is that concept i'm not familiar with that the, the bomb under the table so basically hitchcock said that If you're watching a dinner scene and suddenly the table explodes and everyone dies, that's shock and it can still be horrific, but it's not as impactful as if first you show the bomb underneath the table and then you take your time watching the dinner and the audience is going, oh, I know that this bomb is there. The tension builds and builds Mm. and builds because they know that at some point it's going to go off instead of just being taken by surprise. That's cool. You know, I actually remember now... I watched a lot of, and I remember none of them, but I watched a lot of like the Alfred Hitchcock hour, suspense hour. I love it. Alfred Hitchcock presents. Yes, yes. I feel like those were on like alternately with Twilight Zone episodes when I was a kid. And I watched, and I I remember none of these, but they were, (laughs) I remember, but they were so cool. Yeah, they're really great. And I, so I watched it a lot with my dad as a kid and in my head, they were all written by Alfred Hitchcock. And then I like, was like learning about it. And I was like, no, of course that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, these are all Alfred Hitchcock movies. These are all mini movies. That's amazing. He's so prolific. Well, to be fair, he is insanely prolific. He has a ton of movies. It's true. (laughs) Larry and company return from the doctors with a bunch of friends in tow for a housewarming. Julia is distracted, but Kirsty is sort of infatuated with this guy who does like a fun cigarette trick where he hides it in his mouth. This guy's name is Steve. I don't think that they say it until literally right at the end, but I'm saying it now, so I don't have to just call him the guy. I also think it's interesting that he rebuts the idea that the Brits are all prim and proper, which is what draws Julia to Frank as well. Mm. Julia goes off to bed while the rest party, or so she says, actually heading all the way upstairs once again. And there's a sound of whispering behind the door. But when she enters, it turns to a heartbeat and it is so tense. Slowly, she advances past the rats eating vomit until Frank There he is, a desiccated man who tells her not to look at him, but does demand help. More blood. He's like, he's like, bonjour. You know what I mean? (laughs) He's like, bonjour. He tries to play it real cool. Bonjour, baby. It is gross, though, and she is grossed out. And I do love the the gothic shots 
here where she's like up at the attic and there's the angled camera and and, and cool shadow lighting. It it does play with the uh, like haunted house element of the story in a cool way. Kirsty is drunk, though, and while she's getting walked home by Steve, she is perturbed by a homeless man who stares from inside a doorway with piercing eyes. Right. It, it doesn't disturb her enough, though, to stop her from making out with Steve in an alley while wearing a très chic chapeau. <laughs> I forgot about the, the homeless man. The, that, 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 and, I for, and, and what he becomes at the very end. Oh, my gosh. Well, well we won't spoil it yet, but he's, he's certainly... Uh, <laughs> Let's just say he's a bit of a beast of a man. Ooh, I will say that. Yeah, we will say that. Let's just say uh, he—he, he, I guess he might be the wingman. Whoa! For... He's not dragging his feet. Dragging yes. his feet. <laughs> yes. And he's certainly got a bone to pick with someone. <laughs> and if you're listening right now, you're thinking, bone to pick, hmm. dragging his feet, huh. wingman, huh. beast. What's 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 uh, happening in your brain right now? <laughs> you know, what 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 puzzle pieces more do you need to create a picture of what this man becomes? Hey, if you can't figure it out, you're fired. Yeah, yeah, you are fired. Or just let me know what puzzle pieces you need. I love to give puzzle pieces. <laughs> I'm the puzzle man. <laughs> That's the new Cenobite is Puzzle Man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're all the Cenobites, and it's sort of like a the Wiz type of hello, it's me, the Puzzle Man. <laughs> yeah, the '80s fashion of this movie is really off the charts. I mean, they're really the the hat, Julia's hair, her yeah. broad-shouldered jackets. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Meanwhile, though, Julia is lying awake, reminiscing about the Frank sex again, and it is a nice contrast between the blossoming love affair and the resentful marriage, and even the bed kind of looks like a cage. She can't get over how much she wants this. It's like, it's it's so effective. I keep on saying it, but like, it shouldn't work. I, I can't imagine another actress making this work. It's It's too... I just don't. I. It's so. It's so intense. Yeah. Her desire for this, and it's just. It's crazy. It is, and and finally she gets up and she tells Frank that she will help him. Mm-hmm. We get this weird moment of like Argento surrealism that he was going for, which I think is a pretty cool, just like insert where uh, Kirsty dreams of a baby crying and a bunch of feathers flying around an increasingly bloody sheet over a body, and then when she pulls the sheet, it's her dad. Uh. No. <laughs> No! <laughs> I did think it was funny that rather than her waking up, it's like her noises wake up Steve, who then wakes her up. <laughs> I was like, why don't you just make her wake up? <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is funny. <laughs> but she hurries to call Larry and check on him, which brings her to Frank's attention. Julia sits in a bar like a spider. I, I love these scenes of her sort of luring people um, to who hit on her to the house. And... I especially love that she does seem to have these second thoughts, but then when the guy gets aggressive with her, this, like, firms her decision, and she says, okay, let's go upstairs. Every step of her decision-making process is clear to us as an audience member, and Definitely. we can't dismiss her as just a monster. We we can't even really dismiss her as not an agent of her own, of, of these own horrors, and mm-hmm. we see, like, but she stays human the whole time. It's crazy. 
Yeah. I also do love this nice, like, one-shot slow zoom uh, on them where they're, like, in the doorway there. It is funny that it looks great, but it was, like, out of necessity because they were just like, we have no room to slit the camera, <laughs> like, mm. in front of them <laughs> to uh, dialogue uh, two shots. So they're just going to get a zoom. But once they're up in the room, she grabs a hammer and she dispatches him with enthusiasm. And uh, what she does to his jaw is really grotesque. And this blunt trauma, I think, is way worse than the knife that she uses in the book. Mm-hmm. Frank eats while she steadies herself in the bathroom. And when she returns, the corpse is drained and collapsing in on itself, which is intense and fun and gross. What a great like surprise to come back to. Yeah. <laughs> but Frank is still a fleshman. But most much closer, <laughs> much closer to his old self, though, and it is nasty. And he says, "Come to daddy," and he touches her breast. But downstairs, the door slams shut because Larry is home. And even and I'm I'm, a de- I'm being a dead horse, but those scenes, she's in front of him, she's still aroused, she still wants, she's grossed out, uh, but it, it's all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean. This will, it comes later, but when she like literally like puts his gross fleshy finger on her yeah. lips, I'm like, this is the grossest this movie gets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she carries the body into a spare room that they've been using for storage and quickly runs in the bathroom, feigning illness and sending Larry back down for a brandy while she cleans. Only one more now, maybe two, Frank tells her, and then we can flee the Cenobites. We belong to each other now for better or worse, like love only real. That's a, a, a strong line. Yeah. And and this is where she rubs his goopy finger. <laughs> like love, only real. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. Kirsty sees this same puzzle man, <laughs> uh, homeless guy here, who comes into the pet store she works in, and he sticks his whole hand into a tank of crickets and slowly eats a bunch of them, staring at her all the while. Upsetting. This is an upsetting scene. <laughs> and she does yell at him, but he vanishes when Steve comes by. We see Julia strike again. She gets more satisfied as Frank gets closer to her old self. I really think it's funny that he smokes afterward like it's sex. Again, this pleasure and pain. Drawing that parallel, he also says that he can actually taste it now, so you do get actual story moments out of it. Uh, I think it is funny when he flashes back. He's, like, telling her about the box, and it flashes back to him, like, swinging upside down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They said he got sick as a dog from that in the commentary. Also, they pointed out, and I thought it was interesting, that when we see the flashes of the Cenobites there, that they're really just like backstory in this one, like you were saying, that it, it, they don't provide the thrust of the story, that we're, we're this far into it before we're really getting another look at them. And you kind of like forget that, that they're like part of this movie. Yeah. That night, Larry and Julia are watching boxing, and he's being really like performative about it and is shocked that she's watching. He says, I thought this stuff made you sick. She says, very calmly, I've seen worse. <laughs> God is ass. Wow. I thought this stuff made you sick. <laughs> you don't like boxing. <laughs> You've seen worse? Don't tell me. I don't want to hear about it. It might make me sick. What could it be? My brother Frank revived from the dead? <laughs> Just joking. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> hey, baby. Wanna go upstairs and have a good time? Okay. <laughs> this guy is amazing. And my voice for him is pretty good, too. <laughs> and it will come back. Hell yeah. Hell Anyone's yeah. Anyone's getting frustrated by the voice. <laughs> I'm having a little fun with it. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, Frank paces the attic as the storm rages, and Larry goes to check when he hears a noise. She does try to stop him, but he's determined. And also, she is, like, the most suspicious that she could possibly be in this yeah. moment. <laughs> a bunch of rats are nailed to the wall here, which is nasty as hell. Larry doesn't see anything, though, and he leads Julia to the bed instead. And Frank is in their room. He hid in there, uh, and Larry doesn't know that he's watching them, much less that he literally, like, flays a rat above them. Clive and Ashley both mentioned in this point in the commentary that they both own rats as pets. <laughs> oh, really? That's yeah. cool. So they were they were talking about how they had to, like, go to the BBC and show them that it was a mechanical rat that, like, twitched and stuff, and that they, they weren't just murdering rats. I was like, thank God. Yeah. I like rats. I admire oh, yeah. them. They're cute as hell. Larry does think Julia's saying no is to his sexing and not to Frank being about to kill him, and he's very confused as she cries there. He goes to dinner with Kirsty and he complains about Julia, asking her to stop by and chat with her. Meanwhile, Frank is confronting Julia about Larry and saying, why did you stop me? We got to get one more before they come back and you can't possibly love him. And he just looks so good there in the blood-soaked suit and jacket. Mm -hmm. And now she's wearing red as well, fully completing her alignment with Frank. Mm. Kirsty does hear the final guy being murdered and she sneaks in the back, which has no latch, finding the guy being murdered and begging for help. And this is where Kirsty finds Frank as well. Kirsty, it's Frank. It's Uncle Frank. Yeah. <laughs> he craps for her. Come to daddy. You've grown. You're beautiful. He really is. What a what a scumbag. Yeah, this dude's a this dude's a creepo. Yeah. It, but it is as like I was saying before, there is a thing where you know, it's disgusting, it's horrible, but we've been told about the depths of horrors he has engaged engaged in. You know, going after his niece, who was also, like, you know, the main character, the protagonist of the story, it does sort of limit the horror of this guy for a little bit, you know? Sure. I think once he gets into the dad's form, that sort of, like, breaking of boundary and social profaneness really, like, carries a lot of, like, uh, real visceral uh, disgust. But at this point, there is of, like, even him smoking the cigarette, it's just like, I'm a bad guy, baby. <laughs> That I don't think ever really pays off, or uh, when he gets into the, the the form, that's that's when it pays off. But I do think there is a sort of mist, like what is Frank Steele? Why mm. is he so like? Like it was was it is it desire or is he just is he just bad baby bad to the bone? <laughs> and I think they sort of go back and forth on both of those throughout his characterizations. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Valid uh, assessment for sure. She does fend him off with a jab to the guts, and I mean that as literally as possible. She, like, jams a clean hand into his stomach and pulls back a bloody one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And she also kicks him in the balls. So, there you go. That's not okay. <laughs> Too far. No, no Too matter far, what circumstances here, that is not okay. I also do think that it's funny, uh, or not even funny, but just, like, great from a character standpoint that you can see that she's upset, but she's not, like, reduced to jello. You know, she has a, a, a more firm backbone, a, a more iron core than that. And, I, you know, I don't think it would be as good of a movie if, if all of a sudden she was just whimpering the entire time. She is determined to fight back. How did I raise somebody so brave and resilient? <laughs> Must be from your mother. My beautiful daughter. My daughter. So strong where I couldn't be. She loves boxing. But am I? Is there a voice I'm referencing here? There's some like um, I think it's some animation character that I'm referencing. Yeah, maybe it's definitely. Look, I think that that's just the voice of Larry. You're right. 
It's it's been it's been with him all along. I'm not a reference. I'm me. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm a reference. <laughs> Everyone thinks I'm a reference to a different media property. <laughs> but I'm just Larry. Yeah. <laughs> me and my my dog Droopy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, La- the Hannah Barbera character of Larry. Larry the Cuckold. Where was he in Wacky Races? <laughs> I'm smarter than the average cuckold. <laughs> I really do enjoy doing this voice, and I really do want to apologize for anyone who has had enough of it. Well, I'm having fun. Okay, and we're a- both having fun. I think that's uh, that's the important part. So. I, I, I am inclined to agree. <laughs> When he stumbles back, she fumbles around for a weapon, and she gets the lament configuration, and he pauses, and she can tell that he wants it, and so she throws it out the window as a distraction, and then grabs it again on her way out while she flees. And I love this moment where she passes the nuns that give her a dirty look. Yeah, because I'm like, they have no idea, you know? (laughs) Like those, they they have no idea what this woman has seen. <laughs> Maybe they do know. They they're just like, oh, it's Frank. It's oh. classic Frank. <laughs> <laughs> like, seen this before. <laughs> she passes out, waking up in the hospital as the image of a rose blooms, and it turns out that that's on the TV screen. And the doctor wants to hold her there, locking the door and giving her the puzzle box to try and jog her memory. I love how Kirsty messing with the box is described in the novella as well. So once again, I'm going to read a, a tiny condensed quote. Had it not been for the white walls, she might have never picked up the box. Had there been a picture to look at, a vase of sunflowers or a view of pyramids, anything to break the monotony of the room, she would have been content to stare at it and think. But the blankness was too much. It gave her no handhold on sanity. So she reached across the table besides the bed and picked up the box. Mm. The blood in the like infinitesimal cracks of the puzzle give her enough of a clue that it only takes hours and patience to open it, they say. And so we get this cool scene where the baby cries faintly as the walls shift to reveal this deep passageway. And it's here that the engineer greets her, uh, some kind of fucked up flesh lizard guy chasing her down the hallway. <laughs> oh, yeah. In the book, it's like a, it's lizardy. Is that what it was? In the movie, it's lizardy. In the in the book, it's like a just like a beam of like a cone head of light kind of thing. Hold up. I don't even remember how, what this character looks like. It's the engineer. Yeah. She does get back, but she can hear it behind the wall, and the box zaps her, and suddenly the bell peals, and the environment gets scary as the Cenobites arrive. My beloved chatterer first, but then the rest, and Pinhead speaks. The box, you opened it, we came. Yes. Amazing. So impactful. The the deep, booming voice. Fantastic. Oh, I forgot. This is such a cool little monster. Yeah, he's fun. The box. (laughs) You opened it. We came. You opened it. We came. <laughs> you opened it. But I didn't even... <laughs> yes, you did. But I didn't try to open it. Come with me. But you're so gross. <laughs> Pal. That's really rude, Larry. I don't give a... F- I don't give a flying F. That's Whoa. right. I'm scared to curse. <laughs> you're scared to curse? I don't give a fuck about that. Wow, look at us, you, meek, but able to say, to take the Lord's name in vain. (laughs) Me, disgusting, and yet, and yet I fear those words that your generation has made so omnipresent. Wow, I guess we are two peas in a pod. Whoa, we're finishing each other's 
Sentences. As in crime sentences. <laughs> Sorry. That was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yeah, we're going to get somewhere. I'm going to go back and edit that to, find the, to get all the lines just right. But, but contextually, but as a scene, we can see how, the, how, how there's this value yeah. here. Definitely, definitely. They do say we got to take you with us. They describe themselves as explorers in the furthest regions of experience. Demons to some, angels Angels to others. others. Please, no tears. It's a waste of good suffering. (laughs) She does negotiate a trade through the tears, though. The escaped Frank in her stead. And Pinhead, I want to hear him confess himself first. (laughs) Yeah, I like that moment. I think it's like... And this is the thing about the lore we were talking about before. Little rules like that always, I, I find it pretty compelling. It's like, mm. yeah, like this will, like we'll do this, but we have to hear him. Like that, it feels arbitrary, but it it echoes to an order in their universe that sure. uh, that is frightening. You know, definitely. Back at home, Frank is calm, but Julia is worried about the police, and he says, "Don't worry about the police. I need a new skin, and my brother will be home soon." Julia's corruption is complete. She leads Larry upstairs where Frank kills him and slides into the skin, now having sex with Julia as he's restored. Ugh. Truly, like you said, this is some real, like, looky stuff. Yeah, it's nasty. Kirsty runs home to check on her father, and she hugs him, ignoring the goop and blood all over his hairline and back of neck. <laughs> and they say they killed Frank for his own good, and that she, and she says she needs to see him to believe it. But I really love going back to how great the performance of Julia is. You can see her like smirking giddily behind her. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, we got away. Yeah. The smoking skinned corpse lies in the room and the door shuts behind her as the uh, bell peals uh, and the gash of Cenobites appears. And they demand the man who did this, but she thinks that it's her dad still. Classic mix up. Mm-hmm. The two try and keep her there, and when Frank says, come to daddy, she realizes what's happened, and she scratches at his face, revealing the flesh underneath his disguise. This is a fun little hanging skin. Wait, Larry, you were Frank the whole time. (laughs) It started like that, yeah. It started with me trying to get away from you. But being in this body, we really did have something real. It started as Frank, but it grew to be... No. I feel too betrayed to remain your friend. (laughs) Even if you say that what began as a bet... (laughs) I can't believe you she's all that in me. That's (laughs) fucked up. By the way, that movie is funny to me now. Have you seen the... Hacky sack scene? Yes. So (laughs) funny. No, I can't let you put me back into this space. I gotta go. Wait, at least let me come with you. Ah, ah, ah. That's what I wanted the whole time. I've got you, Frank. You see, (laughs) I can be emotionally manipulative, too. Wait, let let me... I can be emotionally manipulative too. Yeah, I lost the I lost the voice for a second. Well, that's a, I think you you brought it right back, and uh, you know I think you really pulled it full circle there with the emotional manipulation. And circles are really big for me thematically. <laughs> so much for the cat and mouse shit, he says, whipping out his switchblade. But when he lunges for Kirsty, he stabs Julia instead. I do like this. I think it is interesting that he, like, drains her and says, hey, it's nothing personal, babe, before continuing his pursuit. There's a sort of, like, scorpion and the frog element here where Mm -hmm. he can only fight his nature so much. One of my favorite little fables. Classic. Aesop. That guy knew what he was doing. I fucking love Aesop, and uh, I I have to say, it was in my nature. It's (laughs) It's one of my friend groups. 
favorite little lines. Hell yeah. She runs into the storage room and she's almost caught twice. Once when the noise of a dropping Jesus statue draws Frank into the room. And again, when she almost screams while hiding and one of the corpses shifts, dropping a ton of maggots out of its mouth onto her hand. Fun little like haunted house scene here. Yeah. <laughs> she emerges from the room when Frank leaves it. And this is like the slickest camera work as it comes up around the stairs and pivots around her, revealing that Frank was hiding, uh, hiding up there as well. Mm-hmm. Just great stuff. And he says Larry was dead long before they ever touched him, which, again, you know, I, like I said, they, they play it up more in the internal monologues. But there is definitely this idea that Larry, I, I can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, But suddenly the room lights up when he says, dear old Uncle Frank is here. That was the confession, you fool. Mm hmm. It draws the Cenobites, and chains and pillars emerge again, and they got his ass, and the hooks grab him, stopping him from stabbing Kirsty. Jesus wept, he says, after licking his lips at her, and then gets ripped apart. I love, you know, look, Jesus wept, amazing line, but also, just the, like, defiant licking at her is so emblematic of who Frank is for me. I, so I think that licking moment really... That, I think, captures it. Like, this Frank guy is, like, primally fucked. Like, he he gets off on all of this nastiness. The Jesus Wept line, I don't really get it. I don't get what's going on there. Like, like what about that line do you feel like works for you? Because I, I can't figure out what... It feels a little, like... It feels a little, like, uh, a little too aha to me <laughs> without the substance of, like, sure. oh, like, are you saying that you are like Christ on the cross? That seems a little... Mm. I don't know. How do you feel about that line? Yeah, so I think it, it's interesting that I don't know that I had ever really considered it, but beyond just being like, hey, it's a punchy line, and that's that's right a lot of words. It is a punchy line, yeah. I think he is comparing himself to Jesus in terms of, like, the pain that he went through is all in service of yeah, something, yeah, yeah. ostensibly. And I think that he might be saying that it, it for him, it is just in the service of seeking that pleasure and everything, and that... Uh, you know, again, I think it might be kind of like a can't fight his nature moment yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. That is interesting. I will say also that uh, it was originally just fuck you and that it was Andy's idea to change it to Jesus Wept. Interesting. Huh. Well, I'm going to turn this over in my brain. Circles. Yeah. We're back to circles. Turning over. <laughs> the shortest Bible verse. Thematically interesting to me. I, I, I'm going to think about that more because I, I feel both ways. Because I, I think that the idea that like th this pain is in service to something is interesting to me mm -hmm. but there's a punchiness to it that i feel like are you asking me to think about this or are you just giving me a bible line <laughs> at a grotesque moment you know it's honestly really impressive for like frank being in the middle of that to off the cuff be like oh yeah here we go folks yeah yeah, yeah you know <laughs> not leaving so soon says the female cenobite to kirsty as she runs i love that the walls bleed as she cuts it yeah very cool. I also think it's kind of cool that the Cenobites do turn on her. Like, why would they keep that deal? Yeah. Fuck her. <laughs> Kersey grabs the puzzle box, and this is where Pinhead says, we have such sights to show you. We have such sights to show you. <laughs> but she starts closing the box, and she sends a different one back to the void with, with each undone segment, although Butterball just, like, gets a bit of house dropped on him, which is funny. <laughs> Sucks. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve that. <laughs> Clive also hand animated the like going back with one other guy because they were just so broke at the end of this movie. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Steve arrives just in time to see the house collapsing and he runs in to be useless, which they said was a choice that he actually doesn't do anything. Cool. <laughs> he opens the door and out there is the engineer again. 
and Kirsty struggles with it for the box, finally closing it and saving the pair of them. There is a very funny moment there where Steve like tries to grab the box from her and she's like, get the fuck out of here cool. and closes it herself. <laughs> and they emerge onto the street, the door slamming behind them and the rain washing them clean while inside the picture of Frank burns. They get one last little uh, closure moment here where she tosses the box into another fire in a field. This area is called the Wasteland. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, a chair is aflame, just for no reason. (laughs) That's thematic. Yeah. Because it makes you think, then where shall they sit? Wow. (gasps) Wait, what if there is no one there who needs to sit? Great point. Really great point. Isn't that profound? Yes, yes. I told you, I have some literary pretensions, (laughs) and this really stuck with me. (laughs) This is where the gentleman from earlier walks up, reaches into the fire, and grabs it no problem, fully igniting and revealing himself to actually be a bone dragon yes. that flies away with it. Yes. Um, what a what a design here. It's funny that it looks like it flies away. It's really just some fun camera trickery because they only they literally had 700 pounds left at the end and they said make what you can with 700 pounds and it didn't actually move at all or anything. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's just the camera being like, "Oh, I'm flying away." <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not the most memorable moment of this movie for sure. But right. In context, I think is cool. Yeah, definitely. And I think that more importantly is the very final shot where it cuts to a scene just like the opening. The guy says, what's your pleasure, sir? And you can notice the symbolic version of that beast painted on the wall next to them. The cycle, the circle begins again. The circle, thematically interesting to me. That's why I like this movie so much. (laughs) That's why we've now reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, which we have been talking about the whole time, but why it is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Claire Higgins. Done. Claire Higgins. Uh, 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 for me, this is the best horror movie ever made because of a fantastically performed and executed central desire that holds together outrageous actions, absurd, absurdly unclear universes, and murder. And I love it. Definitely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it does something so interesting with the adaptation of it. You Mm -hmm. know, I think that so often it's difficult to adapt a book to the screen because it loses something. And in this, all of the literary aspects of what drives these characters is communicated in a way that improves the movie, doesn't diminish from it. I think that the elements that feel like a book feel great. And like you said, the performances across the board, I think, are, are quite good, although certainly Claire Higgins is, uh, is at the top of her game. The fact that it does such a great job of having the patience to set it up, and then we just hang out with the family for a while, and then come back to, to the gore and, and the viscera and everything, I think is really impressive. I think that it delivers on that stuff as well. It's not like, okay, we sit here waiting for the goop, and then it's five seconds of nothing. This is a really gross movie. It looks great. The lighting is fantastic. It's playing with interesting cinematography, all this great gothic stuff. Um, I just think that it's doing so much. And of course, the character designs are outrageous. Yeah. Uh, I can't I can't be like, oh, the Cenobites don't mean anything to this movie because they are incredible. The way they balance out everything in this is so effective and cool. And the way they steal the show outside of the movie, but you don't feel bad that they're not the stars of the movie, 
is a testament to both how exciting they are in the scenes that they are in and how much the rest of the movie holds together. Definitely the case, and that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Tim, I want to thank you so much for coming on, man. This was so much fun. Please tell the people where they can check out all your other work, social media, all that jazz. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I had such a blast doing this. My Twitter is at Timothy Platt. My Instagram is at I am King Bozo. I perform in Brooklyn and New York all around. I post on social media. I'm doing a, a show called Made of Bugs in LA on July 23rd. I don't know if this comes up before then, yep. but come check that out if you want to see songs, jokes, characters, and stuff. If you want to hear more of me online or on your headphone, I am in Rude Tales of Magic, a Dungeons & Dragons comedy podcast DM'd by Branson Reese, and Oh These, Those Stars of Space, a Star Trek pastiche where we play a, a game called um, Lasers and Feelings as GM'd by Joe Lapore. I have hosted a podcast called Hampton High, which is now done, but it's 50 episodes of a, a sort of a high it's a kid who's doing like what about WTF with Mark Maron but from high school huh? I'm talking to all like my parents and stuff and friends lock the gates that's stuff you can know about me absolutely uh, definitely go check all that stuff out I think also former guest Joe Rumrill will be at that Made of Bugs show yes so, he will so definitely if you're in LA go check out that show you'll get plenty of hip friends of the show what movie did he do we talked about Freaked, the 1993 uh, Alex Winter body horror uh, movie. It's really, it was a really fun one. Cool. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That username applies pretty much everywhere, including Instagram and Letterboxd. Although for Instagram versus Twitter, I'm mostly on Twitter. As far as the show, uh, rate and review if you're enjoying it. It does help. And uh, if you're really enjoying it, you can check out the Patreon, where there's all kinds of bonus episodes about, literally, I mean, everything. We've talked about... Other great horror movies, Branson Reese, who was mentioned, came back to talk about 13 of the best animated horror shorts from 1929 to 1953. Cool. We've talked about EC Comics. We talked about Freaky Friday, 2003. Clay Tatum just came back to talk about PT, the playable teaser from uh, that was supposed to come out for Silent Hills. So truly, we're all over the place doing all kinds of fun stuff that doesn't necessarily fit on the main feed. Uh, so if you're enjoying the show, check that out for just a couple bucks a month. All right, everyone. Bye. Bye.